Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, uh, welcome to the first Gov Actually podcast of 2018. Very uh, exciting. Yeah, very excited about a new year um, and very excited about uh, diving in to an important Gov Actually issue. And that would be? Well, I'm reading section 124 of A11 right now, as, as <laughs> one would do. Yes. Yeah, and that is... Well, it uh, is, it's Friday morning, right? So right, it's A11 well, day, right? Well, you know, I've been working through last week was 123, and it just so happened that I hit on 124 which are the instructions to agencies in the instance of a federal funding lapse. Which is the politic, which is the technical term for government shutdown. Government shutdown, right. Yeah. Or I've heard, actually, they've referred to it now as a partial government shutdown because they've become a little more savvy about the Good. fact that it doesn't actually all shut down. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should start start there in terms of... I think the term shutdown is uh, maybe a more dramatic term than, uh, or a bigger term than actually what happens. Don't get me wrong, uh, a shutdown uh, or a funding lapse is highly disruptive and uh, should be avoided. And as we sit here on Friday, January 19th, on the last day of the CR, um, and at this point that we're taping this, there's no deal in sight, it's somewhat depressing that uh, for, for a variety of different reasons that we're, we're at a point in which the, the, we will have a funding lapse. We can kind of get into that. But a shutdown implies that, um, that everything shuts down and so many uh, critical government fu- functions won't. Um, and we can talk about you know, kind of what does and what doesn't shut down and why. But you, you have like some of the history here, right, about the... Like why this started and 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 the the role of the Anti Deficiency Act. Do you want to put your Professor Tanger Lee well, hat on? I, and... I was I was gonna I was gonna say how far back do you want to go in 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 understanding why we get to this condition? Obviously, um, people know in the current discussion, the dispute is around whether any kind of continued funding of the appropriated side of the government. Um, relies on whether there's going to be a deal related to um, uh, to DACA, the uh, the Dreamers Act. The, the kids brought over across the border um, without documentation and, and were given a path to citizenship that has been revoked by the, the current administration. So this is this is how these issues start, right? So there's some uh, there's a need, there's there's the need for the Congress to appropriate funds for agencies to run. That is, a, that is like the essential role of Congress in Article I of the United States Constitution. So you can't go much further back than that, Article right. I of the U.S. Constitution. But then there is these high, um, high controversy, high risk issues that increasingly have been tied to the fact that Congress needs to pass something. There's this must pass legislation. And where there's no resolution over these issues, one side or the other will try to force the issue um, by saying, look, we're not gonna we're not gonna join in on passing these uh, appropriations bills unless we um, we get some movement on the issue. Yeah, so that's that kind of brings us to 
to, to, to the reality of, you know, this, why the government can't fund itself ties down to a much broader question of can the Congress and the executive branch get together on and agree on a set of policy priorities. And some of those policy priorities have nothing to do with funding the government. Um, but as you, as you point out, this is where we are in terms of the negotiation. But let's, let's, uh, let's weave that in in a bit. Let's talk a little bit just about the mechanics of government funding. So first of all, there's, um, there's two different types of funding in general. There's discretionary spending and there's mandatory spending. And for discretionary spending, that every year Congress appropriates money for a whole set of activities that are subject to discretionary spending. And then there's a whole set of activities that aren't even subject to that at all. And a lot of them are big deal issues like social security benefits and Medicare and a whole host of other funding that, the, that most Americans associate government with um, will in many cases not be impacted by the shutdown, at least in the short term. And can I complicate matters by saying even something uh, like Social Security, which is, you know, is an authorized entitlement, so that doesn't go through the appropriations process. If you meet certain criteria, you qualify for the benefit. That's, yes. that's essentially the definition of a mandatory uh, spending cap. Yeah, another simple way to think about it is, and I think this is the point you're making, it's not like, hey, we're setting aside a billion dollars for Social Security this year. As you said, there, it doesn't matter. There's no cap. It's if you're eligible, then, then, then the money is made available. And if the government doesn't have the money, they'll borrow the money through uh, treasury bills and other means and issuing debt in order to pay. But you're right, an entitlement, there's no set budget for it. What drives the spending is the population's eligibility for it. I mean, you just said something interesting about debt. That's a whole other... That's a whole other uh, podcast. Maybe that'll be number two because well, we're heading towards another potential funding lapse-related crisis, and that's a that's a debt ceiling um, uh, limit, the debt ceiling limit, and the, and the possibility of exceeding it. So that we'll do yeah. that another day. Right. If we if this podcast existed at the end of 2012, where you had the combination at the same time of the threat of a funding lapse and a debt limit breach, and that became referred to as kind of the fiscal cliff moment, where things were, these types of events were converging, and for what it's worth, the, the possibility of a debt limit breach is, has far more serious consequences um, worldwide uh, than, uh, than the funding lapse that uh, we're seemingly about to incur. Um, so that pro that probably warrant warrants a, a, another podcast. Uh, but getting back to the the funding lapse on the discretionary side, we there are a bunch of activities where there's a set budget, and if you and if and if there's not enough money, then you you don't do extra activities. And so well, there will be a budget of a hundred million dollars for this activity and a budget for for two billion dollars for this activity, and and you can only spend to that limit. And, and that money runs out of, you know, of, of the ability to, to, to obligate it or spend it um, at the end of each fiscal year. And without Congress authorizing or appropriating new money, you can't spend it. And one of the big things that is uh, paid for with annual appropriations is 
many federal employee salaries. Right. So one of the one of the reasons why I think it's called a shutdown is that one of the big things that will happen effective tonight at midnight if the government shuts down or if the funding lapses is that uh, essentially the salaries of federal employees, they'll cease to be legal money that Treasury and other agencies can tap in order to pay salaries. And so everyone has to no longer be actively employed by the government, so they're furloughed because they can't incur a salary at that point. So this, this actually opens up the door for the history lesson again. So we started at Article One, power of the purse, Congress appropriates money for agencies to do their work. Um, what happened was in, you know, particularly in the 1800s, around the time of the Civil War, the agencies took to spending that money that they got from Congress as quickly as possible and then creating what were called obligations of the federal government. They would sign, you know, IOUs essentially, or they would keep people working and tell them, you know, we'll go ask Congress for the money to pay you. And so um, beginning in the uh, early 1880s, I think it was actually 1884, the first version of the Anti-Deficiency Act was passed. And this is, seems kind of logical, but the, the, the essential element of the act is you can't spend money that Congress hasn't appropriated, that Congress essentially hasn't acted on. And the ADA over time was added to and embroidered a little bit. Um, it's now a very specific law and it's a, it's a very, you know, it's one that as, as people who worked in the federal financial uh, community, we were, it was beaten into us from an early age that the ADA was essentially, you know, the prime directive for, uh, for uh, uh, federal financial people? Well, there's a couple of different uh, uh, areas that federal employees can really get themselves into trouble. Um, you know, obviously, there's big things that federal employees can do that can get them into trouble, like you know, driving while intoxicated in their personal life and other things that can ultimately impact the fact that they're holding a, a position of public trust. So that's obviously something that federal employees have to be aware of. But in terms of doing your day-to-day -day job, there's a couple of things that can get you in trouble as a federal employee, in deep trouble, and one of them happens to be violating the Anti-Deficiency Act is something that is taken so seriously. And what it essentially means is, again, spending money that Congress hasn't appropriated. So effective at midnight tonight, if no budget is passed, then the Congress has not appropriated money for a whole variety of different activities. And if someone in the federal government takes an action that uh, that has that assumes that that money's in place, they could be subject to an anti-deficiency act violation, which has very serious consequences, ranging from uh, termination of employment all the way to other much more serious penalties. If uh, depending on the circumstances of there the actual, violation, there are actual criminal penalties yeah. under the ADA, although no one has ever been prosecuted until. Um, but the 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 uh, believe as 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 you and I know, as, as coming up uh, in the ranks uh, in the financial management community, uh, it's something that, they, that the government agencies take very seriously. Right, right. We used to refer to it as budget jail. You don't want to go to budget jail. You do not want to go to budget jail. Um, right. But that's why it is technically illegal for a person who doesn't meet certain criteria to, a federal employee who doesn't meet certain criteria to come to work during a, a shutdown. So you can't volunteer your work because that would be 
a um, that would be an augmentation of appropriations, as as they call it. That yeah. would be that would essentially be adding value to a place where Congress has determined that no value shall be added. <laughs> well, that's an interesting way of it. It also it's it's this it's this interesting question that the government can't uh, uh, accept free things mm -hmm. because of this very same principle. Basically, Congress has to pass and the president has to sign essentially a permission structure to go and spend money and um, and this and, and there's and as we said earlier there's a set of activities that fit into this bucket where you have to get that renewed permission structure every year and so what happened and that year by the way ends on September 30th and begins on October 1st but we're sitting here on January 19th having this discussion because what has happened pretty much I don't know, like 90% of the time uh, since, the, since the early 90s, I think, or even going before that, um, Congress doesn't pass a full year budget in time for September 30th, and they pass what these, th these things called continuing resolutions, which is basically keeping last year's budget on autopilot, so everyone kind of gets the same level. There's some exceptions in each continuing resolution, some bump ups and bump downs that are referred to as anomalies, CR anomalies. Um, but, and then those uh, CRs, uh, continuing resolutions, are typically passed for a certain period of time, sometimes for the whole year. That's sometimes called a full year CR. Four days. Sometimes for yeah four days and some and and in this case if I remember correctly and uh, I think in September 30th they passed something through December. Uh, Congress got together again in December and the week leading up to the to the last day is like is the government going to shut down is the government going to shut down and Congress passed another extension to the continuing resolution to January 19th at midnight which is today and so what needs to happen before midnight is Congress either needs to pass another continuing resolution for two days, three days, four days, or maybe a full year appropriation. That doesn't seem likely at all because there are major elements of the funding package that Congress has an, and the president and the executive branch hasn't agreed to and what you mentioned earlier. And now there's a new issue that's come into play which is uh, related to immigration policy, which not, is related not to really DACA. Not really a new issue, but well, a, a new an issue. yeah, that's a, that's right. It's yeah, a, not a new issue at all. Right. In fact, that issue has a super interesting history as well. Uh, um, another podcast. That's another yeah. podcast. Wow, you're getting the whole agenda for 2018 laid out in front yeah, of you. Yeah, yeah. Now that is a, that is a, that is a super issue that has actually been in, in place for a while and actually started. Uh, back in, uh, you know, got, got re-upped in terms of its prominence in 2001 when um, I think it was Orrin Hatch who introduced legislation to, um, to, to provide uh, protection, mm -hmm. um, used, used the term path to citizenship earlier. Right. I'm not sure it was that fulsome. I think it was kind of more protection. Right. Um, but I'll have to do some research before we, we have the podcast. Protection for uh, children that were undocumented, that were brought over uh, in a way that was was undocumented, but they were ch a child at the time, and now they're living in the country, and now they're not documented. Right, and the idea of of expatriating them to a country that they've actually never lived in or grew up in is yeah, is something, seems... and that protection is something that resonates uh, across parties, if I understand yeah. uh, the, the the political landscape on this. Um, but the issue that's causing this shutdown is 
is is is probably is, is a couple of other things like when should they deal with it there's a upcoming deadline for those that currently have protection of Cre- march 8th. created created by the administration but now we're getting into that, that oh yeah, should, yes. so, yeah sorry so, well, yeah, yeah. and then a- there was a court uh decision that stayed that and so now they're saying there's why what's the what's the exigency but you know that that's um you know there's questions about whether that's uh, legitimate well or not. but just let's before, before we jump off i think the, the 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 sense of urgency uh from uh from from the democrats and some in congress is that uh a, a set of protections currently expire on march yeah. 8th right um and so the, and I think those that there are others who hold the opinion that um, we still have time since it's March 8th. Let's pass this spending bill now and deal with it in the in the coming weeks. And so they haven't agreed. And here we go. We're going into this this mm-hmm. phase now. You and I have both been through this before. Um, so let's talk about that at, after the break. Our, our yeah. personal experiences. I've been through it a couple times. Because um, you're older than me. Because I'm much older. Right. Um, uh, uh, Thanks. Um, uh, but uh, I, I also think it's it, there's one little more kind of uh, gov actually micro detail we should talk about. The fact that you can have, say, a mandatory program like Social Security, yes. which um, under the, under the kind of shutdown rubric, people should get their checks, but right. you'll have employees who are appropriated who under the, under the strict definition of shutdown rubric, those people shouldn't necessarily be coming into work to actually process those checks. Yes. Then you have cases where you have programs that are clearly appropriated, like the Bureau of Prisons, and the salaries and expenses count on the Bureau of Prisons is pure is purely annual appropriated. And yet they're gonna they're gonna bring in all the prison guards uh, in any version of a shutdown. With virtually no disruption. And that's because they fall within a definition of uh, life safety. Yeah. So this isn't, so a lot of people use the term when they say who comes to work after a funding lapse, they say who's essential. They stop saying that. Well, they stop saying that. Uh, and, uh, and the reason is, is because the, because it's not, first of all, maybe I'll be politically correct because we're all essential. Uh, but I think the truer reason is, is because legally, um, it's more of an exception than a disti- an exception to the general rule that if your fund if your salary is funded with annual appropriations with which many employees are then uh, then you don't come in unless you're a subject to an exception so I think the correct terminology is are you accepted or not mm-hmm. and if you're accepted then you come in so um, and really- what is what drives those exceptions you mentioned, the biggest one, which is uh, life and property. Right. So if there's an implication that, um, that you not coming to work or an activity not going forward because Congress uh, and the president failed to come together on a spending bill and the previous spending bill has expired, uh, if that failure to show up to work and do your job threatens the life and property of something, um, then an exception can can be formulated, and you can come to work. So there are accepted employees who meet that test, the definition. Then non-accepted employees, and within the category of non-accepted employees, then there are exempt employees. And exempt employees are people who are paid for either through a mandatory program, through a program that doesn't 
require annual appropriations. So there right. are some programs that have multi-year funding, some right. VA programs in particular and DOD programs. And then there are other programs that have balances built up, appropriated balances that, um, that people can still draw salaries from because the appropriation happened at some point in the past and there's still balances allowed that can pay those. And here's why these funding lapses are so disruptive and problematic is that all of these things integrate every day in government. It's not like, oh, you're, you're down the hall with all the mandatory funded people and you're across the street with all the people that are funded out of multi-year appropriations. Everything that we just described, you could be in a, in a critically important meeting or set of activities and everyone around you is funded out of some different source. And I'm not saying that, that, that that's the, the correct way to architect it, but that's the world we live in. So when you pull out all of the appropriated funded, uh, single year appropriated funded people from the government all at once, suddenly the, the connectivity of what makes government successful, the logistics and the operations of it starts to get compromised. And you mentioned it earlier, like we, all the social security benefits are mandatorily, are mandatorily funded, so people should still get their social security checks, but there's a lot of people funded with annual appropriations that are helping process those and dealing with all the administrative activities that go on and getting those out the door. And that's where some of the real gray areas come in to, in, to the legal interpretations of who, comes home, who come, comes home from their agency and stays home until the funding lapse is over and who goes to work. That's where the lawyers uh, in preparation for tonight work overtime to make sure that those gray areas they're figuring out, are you so, is, is your absence going to trigger a, an end to a mandatory payment and that in and of itself wouldn't necessarily cancel, you know, suggest you're accepted, but would the cancellation of that mandatory payment cause life and property damage? It gets very, very complicated. And that's why there's these questions about um, whether these activities like Social Security benefits and Medicare, yes, they go forward, but will they go forward free of disruption? Well. That's something that remains to be seen once we enter into a new operating world uh, post shutdown. So um, uh, let's uh, let's take a break for a second. When we come back, let's talk about what it was like to actually be in a world in which you had this um, this uh, almost it felt sometimes like a random number generator that decided who is going to be around the table and who wasn't. Sounds good. Gov actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, Danny, so we're back and we want to talk about, uh, we've talked about government shutdowns, the history, um, technically the underlying authorities and some of the choices you have to make, but... Uh, um, I think it would be interesting to give people some kind of sense of what it was like to actually work in a place and actually be in the position to try to figure out yeah. how, to, how to handle this. But thing. before we get into that, uh, during the break, okay. I checked, checked my news feed, my Twitter feed on uh -huh. my iPhone, and um, uh, no progress. Really? 
because I was thinking like, what if I, during the break, I looked at, at my phone and it's like deal last minute deal materializes. Would we, would we change the second half of the podcast and talk about something completely random? No, I, I, I think um, whatever deal happens, I'd be curious to see if it's actually a full year deal. Oh, it won't. I, at this point, I think that yeah. seems virtually impossible. Uh, in which case, I think I think it's still useful kind of, I know. Uh, you know, useful effort. Or if not, people could just yeah. you know turn off the podcast and so a couple back to like this American Life or something more fun. Yes. <laughs> so a couple of interesting just like tidbits about. Do you do an Ira Glass impression that you could like, do an work? Ira Glass from? Apparently, you're not a big This American Life listener. No. All I'm right. Not. Well, we'll work on that. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, but so. I will say that it sounds like uh, just the name Ira Glass sounds like someone I would potentially be able to do a good impression of. Possibly. So Possibly, uh, yeah. I'm in. All right. Um, so uh, so from my experience, just you know, sh- there was a shutdown in the '90s. And I joked earlier that you're older than me, and I think it was in the winter of 1996. Yeah, 95 and 96. It happened twice. And and then there wasn't a a real legitimate risk of a shutdown until 2011. And so it was um, uh, April time frame 2011 can i can i say that yes. in the in the big shutdown it was it was 27 days it was it was in this impossibly long shutdown Are you in the 90s or in 2013 in the winter of 20 of 95 96 okay uh uh my wife and i had just been gotten married we were renovating a house on capitol hill um i got so much work done i i was a at the time they called us essential and non-essential uh, employee. So, so I was non-essential OMB examiner. They're non-essential like, OMB examiner. Get okay. out of here. And uh, you went home. I just went home. It was uh, it was the the teeth of the gale of a pretty tough winter, and uh, we just you know renovated. Wow. Yeah. So, so you were I, productive during. So the when shutdown. I when I come up to the, when I come up to the third floor of our house, I, I look at the uh, at this uh, this coffered ceiling we built that was the the ceiling that the shutdown uh, gave me time to build so. yeah so interesting factoid um, so in uh, 2011 when uh, when it seemed it seemed that uh, that shutdown was likely and I think Jack Lou was the chief of staff at the time uh, Jeff science was the acting director of OMB at the time. And I was serving as the acting deputy director. And it's actually like the ap- acting deputy director uh, for management or deputy director for management that has a very central role in right. coordinating mm-hmm. the whole readiness operation for the government to get ready for a government shutdown. So no laws are violated and the shutdown is done, is done smartly and efficiently. Um, at that point, there was, I hadn't been around in the 90s. So uh, Jeff and I, uh, decided to call the last person who sat in the DDM chair when there was a government shutdown, and that was John Koskinen. Yes. So I've, I have this memory of um, having breakfast with Jeff and John Koskinen in 2011, getting his historical reflection on what the uh, OMB leadership should and shouldn't be doing to get ready for a shutdown. And that, that was a lot of work back then because we didn't, we were building from scratch because right. it had been so many, it had been a decade. We were building, or more than a decade. We there was built, no Section 124. Right. Well, we had, a, all the government agencies had to put their shutdown plans together, uh, which are plans that basically says, this is what we'll do uh, when there's a funding lapse. There was, you know, hours and hours and hours of CFO council meetings and, 
and presidential management council meetings uh, with all kinds of, of, of legal and tactical questions as, as in, in a matter of days we were ramping up an entire workforce who either wasn't around for the shutdown of the 90s or didn't remember. And then I can re- I remember, you know, reading, people were getting me out of, uh, you know, out of storage, uh, old memos from the 1990s uh, that were typed and uh, yeah. to kind of see how, how different issues. with whalebone. It's, and, it yeah, seemed that way. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed like delicate parchment was being right, put before right. me. Um, so, so actually, uh, I, I will say that I think a lot of the legwork that was required um, uh, was done back in 2011, 2012. We had a series of government shutdown threats that got this modern government, the government that we are today with the current workforce and the current general counsel's office kind of up to a baseline. It's like a drill. I remember, so I was yeah. a CFO of the Treasury Department. I remember you used to do those calls in preparation. And then yeah. we had to run through um, OPM, gave, the Office of Personnel Management also gave guidance on who, you know, who's exempt, who's non-exempt, who's accepted. Um, uh, and we had to run through giant lists and have our bureaus run through giant lists of who were, you know, start preparing those databases. The Treasury Department, which wasn't particularly big federal agency, had 120,000 people. So the, just the sheer mechanics yeah. of understanding where people fall on the line and then the judgment calls. And they're just vast numbers of judgment yeah. calls. And, and that's, that's where the lawyers have to, it's a, it's a very subjective, um, a lot of the process is subjective. Um, I was making, I was interviewed the other day about shutdown. I was making this point. They said, when does OMB signal to the agencies, like it's time to drop what you're doing and get ready for shutdown? And I said it's it's more artistry than anything else because what what agent what OMB's trying to gauge and what I was trying to gauge back then with the other OMB leaders is we don't want to disrupt everyone unnecessarily. So we could be five hours away from a shutdown, but if the but if the deal is imminent, you know, it's like, well, what do, what do we tell people? Right. You know, so i we've been in situations now where the government's gonna shut down, but all signs point to a deal. So so OMB takes a very light touch with the agencies in terms of warnings and shots across the bow in terms of this is what you need to be doing. Um, but at some point, and there's no set time, it's not like it's there's a 24-hour you know, warning or a 48-hour warning. At some point in time, OMB has to make a judgment call that there's a significant enough risk that a deal is not going to happen and it's not worth it to disrupt everyone's activities of what they're doing and pivot their attention towards putting these lists together or validating them if they've already been putting together and going over what their operating plan is to essentially send the right set of people home um, and, um, and, and go through, for example, what, what you need to do to, to, to communicate with your grantees, your contractors, your employees, and all the various people that are impacted by your programs, you have to communicate with them what's going to happen as a, what can you expect on Monday? Now, I, I made light of the 27-day unplanned uh, uh, vacation I was uh, forced to take um, in the 90s. But at the time, 
they really, because there was no history of these shutdowns of, of any duration, um, uh, there was concern that we wouldn't get paid. And yeah. so you, you left your job, you just literally dropped your pencil and walked away from your desk. All the things that were important and significant had been planned, just got obliterated. You didn't know when you were coming back, and then there was the possibility of not being paid. Subsequent shutdowns have established an expectation that employees will be paid, but is there any guarantee? There's no guarantee, and it's one of the one of the number one questions people ask me about shutdowns. It's you know, that's the top are, do you think there'll be a shutdown? And that I'm the least informed on because that's all depends on the internal politics of the deal. Um, but uh, but the, the big question is, will furloughed employees get uh, get paid their, their money back? Um, and, uh, and, and while there is a precedent that they do get paid back in a shutdown, I think in the sequester, they weren't because the whole point of the sequester was they needed the government needed the furloughs in order to meet mm-hmm. the the new the budget cuts that were being put in place by the by the sequester. So there's recent precedent that furloughed employees don't get paid back. Um, so I think there's there's always that risk um, that uh, that they might not uh, get fully reimbursed. I just don't know. And I think that this is part of the deep um, unpopularity of shutdowns as you send all these people home. You eventually pay them. They didn't do anything. There's all this inconvenience and annoyance. Yeah, it's and it's just because these folks can't compromise and they can't get their primary job done, which is passing an appropriations bill and, and signing it into law. It's a frustrating... Uh, I think everyone's frustrated about it. I mean, it, I, I watch uh, members of Congress talk on the news and they're frustrated uh, by it. Um, I think I think I think everyone has a north star to try to get the budget process working again, but there's just so many uh, uh, underlying issues uh, that we just can't seem to get get alignment on, and it's uh, it's super frustrating and disheartening. I'm I'm you know I'm really really concerned about uh, the impact that these shutdowns have. I think I think it's like. We can make light of the free vacation, but I think it's very stressful for the workforce to be sent home. Um, uh, most members of the workforce are uh, really excited and energized about the mission that their agencies are taking on, and to be told, like, nope, <laughs> go home, there's nothing for you to do here, is, uh, is disappointing. Um, and then obviously there's the stress of, of not uh, potentially not getting paid in full, and then then when you come back, you've got to stand things up again. So I'll give you a, so when, so the last time the government shut down was 2013, and it was on October 1st. So the they could at the end of the fiscal year of 2012, they could not get a uh, a deal done. Or I'm sorry, going into fiscal year 2014, I should say. Um, so no, no even short-term CR to start the year. The government shut down on October 1st. That was the first time the government had shut down since the 90s. You were the administrator of GSA at that moment. I was the acting commissioner of the IRS. Um, the IRS, I don't know about GSA, but the IRS actually had a very large percentage of the workforce that was furloughed. Um, just based on the way the lawyers read and the life and property exception, a, 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 most of the IRS activities are funded out of a single-year appropriation. So it was a ghost town um, at the IRS. Um, and, you know, 
couple of reflections. One was there were still congressional hearings going on. So, um, so that was difficult to, to deal with and prepare for because I had a lot of people at home and preparing for a hearing is challenging because you have to have uh, answers to questions and it's a large organization, 90,000 people, a lot of moving pieces and to get answers to questions that Congress has, typically you network those questions out to the people that are closest to the issues. But when you're calling people and no one's answering because they're home, you know, on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and there's no end in sight to when they're and coming you, and back. And you can't call them at home or else you'd be violating the anti Exactly. You can't call them at home. The only reason you can call them at home is to tell them to come back. Right. Um, but one of the big things that happened at the IRS... That during, was actually an interesting thing. People couldn't even log on to their computers. Yeah. So. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that, that, <laughs> that we had at the IRS, which was a, a mishap, was we had a, uh, a phone number that you could call into with a recorded message that would say, would give you the status. Government's still closed, mm -hmm. call back in if you want further notice, or the government has reopened, please report to oh, work. No. Is it an appropriated phone line? Or? I don't know, but what happened was, for what, there was a computer glitch of some kind in the middle of the shutdown, and the phone switched to the message, the government's open. Oh no, so, so this I is get, like the Hawaii notification. Exactly, <laughs> it's my version of that. <laughs> A little less serious, but much um, less serious. Yeah. But yeah, a lot, you're right. Much less serious. And uh, and um, I came to work at, to the IRS one day during the shutdown because I was accepted as the acting commissioner. I had to be there, um, and I got word that people were showing up to work, like in the Atlanta field office. I'm like, wait, what's happening? I, because I actually, of this message. I actually think um, I actually think you were exempt because you were uh, a um, confirmed official. Okay. Confirmed officials, because their pay... Past, presidentially appointed, Senate confirmed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Congress can't mess directly with the pay of a confirmed official. So yeah, they you're have right. to come. You're right. That's probably right. Yeah. So there were, there were political appointees who had to come to work. Yeah. And then there's, you know, and so they're, they're in the exempt category because unless Congress abolished the position, they were essentially, you know, you yeah. know political appointees don't get vacation time. They, you know... They're just always on the clock. So, so for my for, for the IRS, my kind of like the, what the painful memory that I have from the shutdown, among many, in addition to trying to deal with very challenging congressional hearings where the agency was shut down, was October is and the government shut down for several weeks in 2013, and October is a really critical month for the IRS to get the programming of the underlying technology ready for filing season, which begins in late January. So on the first day when tax filing season starts, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's millions of, of uh, returns that come in on day one. Mm -hmm. People have them locked and loaded, ready to go. And the computer system at the IRS has to be ready to absorb all that without glitch and start processing it. Um, and, and there's a lot of work that goes in every day is critical on the journey to get ready for the first day of filing season. It's a big deal at the IRS and every tax year is different as you know, cause there's always adjustments. And so it's a, it's a whole planning exercise, um, that's very intense and you can't send home everyone for three weeks and not have an impacted. So when the shutdown ended, uh, and we're and it's November. The team started coming to me and saying we lost a lot of time, and there's a lot of risk that we're not going to be ready on the first day of the filing season. Uh, we we'll ha haven't done our full testing of the technology, and we have a, a, a substantial risk 
that everyone's going to send their tax returns in on day one and it'll get rejected or something, some, something mission critical will fail. And so the answer was to delay, to, I had to make a decision of whether to take that risk that even though we lost three weeks and we didn't get as much done as we wanted, we're going to open the tax filing season on time or whether to delay tax filing season. And it was in a no-win situation because to delay, people would complain because that means they're not going to get their refunds as quickly. Um, or to not delay, I had this risk that we would have a failure. So, so the point is that these types of things are going to be happening all over government um, once if, if we have an extended shutdown. So uh, a very fascinating, similar story in, in GSA over this question about who stays and who goes. And it's, it feels sometimes random. You know, it doesn't feel like necessarily the highest priority tasks are still taking place. One would argue that the collection of revenue for the government to actually pay the bills that the appropriators are, are appropriating or non-appropriating would be way up there on the list of things you'd keep going. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes. Way down on the list of things you'd keep going would be acquiring more things, right? So actually going out and buying more stuff. Oddly enough, the Federal Acquisition Service was funded under a revolving fund. So all of the Federal Acquisition Service still came into work to, in theory, buy stuff for people who weren't there. Yes. So you had, you had this bizarre outcome where I've got all these people essentially with government credit cards and they're not buying anything because no one's there for them to buy it for, or they yeah. can't buy it for them because their money hasn't been appropriated. So they're sitting around saying, wow, I can't wait till the shutdown's over. So you have people on forced vacation and you have people on kind of like forced idle mode. Yes. The other, you know, which uh, is just nuts. It's just nuts. Yeah. Right. So then the other fast and you're sitting there and you're, you're a manager, you're dedicated to efficiency and, you know, protecting the federal purse and all that. And you're, and, and you're you know, leading an organization that's forcing some people to stay home and forcing other people to come in, even though you know that you can't have them. You know, you had to tell them, don't do anything or be really careful about what you do. You know, you know don't do your job, although come in and we're going to pay you for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's because that's that going back to what we said in the first segment, the shutdown, it's like this random, mm -hmm. you know, kind of cutout of the government. It's not a well thought out, holistic cutout. Well, of another, another great story. We ran payroll through our chief financial officer office for a number of agencies, a business I later got out of because it was kind of wacky. Um, and it, the wackiness was really driven home in the shutdown when all those people had to go home, but they were in charge of payroll for people who were exempt and accepted employees. So here are people who had to come in, who were qualified and frankly, you know, needed and deserved to be paid, but the people who paid them had to go home. Yeah. And so we got into all kinds of interesting questions of the, you know, the transitive property of exemption, right? <laughs> if, if I'm a person who pays a person who's exempt, am I therefore exempt? And the answer is no, you're not. Yeah. That's what we were making that point earlier. If I am critical to the processing of a social security benefit, but I'm a paid with fiscal year 2018 appropriations, do I come in or do I not? And, and it, it depends on your interpretation of, will my absence risk the, uh, the on-time payment of a social security benefit? And will that on-time payment, if it's not made, 
have a risk to life and property. There's all these, you know, kind of questions that the lawyers have to come up with. And they're big, and they're big judgment calls, and eventually they land on the plate of a political person yeah. who has to decide whether that's, you know, the right choice or not, and actually then leaves room for politics to creep into it. And yeah. in the certainly during the Clinton shutdowns, there were criticisms from uh, from the other party that Clinton was shutting, was trying to maximize the pain so people felt. I, I, I totally empathize with, with the tension there. I'll tell you why. One of the real reasons why, I, I, uh, biggest reasons why I, I do not like government shutdowns, this, I have a very, very long list. But <laughs> one of the top ones is because it's a mixed, me- like if the government shuts down and everyone's life is, is, is really unimpeded because air traffic controllers are going to still come to work. The prison guards are still coming to work. Food safety inspectors are still going to have to do their food safety inspections because there's a life or property issue. Uh, so there's so much of government that still keeps going to protect the citizenry during a shutdown. And so my fear is, is that the shutdown happens and people are like, eh, right. you know, not so well, bad. And, so so and maybe I, we don't need government, but the reality, and, and so then we start to have a, 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 a malaise or a negative thought about the importance of government, but the reality is, is a lot of that stuff was still funded and going on and helping have the the society we have. But the implication from the news media and general consciousness is, oh, the government was shut down. Which is why I wonder about the actual. I, I don't know what level of legal challenge there has been around the life and safety exemption. A strict constructionist view of the. Constitution, we'd say Article One. Con- Congress has the power of the purse. Congress didn't open up the purse, so where's the authority to bring people in for life and safety? Other than, you know, we can't let, you know, stupid political fights, you know, cause planes to smash right. into each other. And so, so, in a way, what we've done through the life safety exemption is taken away the you know, the seriousness of this activity, this Article One activity that Congress has. Yeah, and so what happens on a shutdown is is painful and uh, disruptive, but but for many Americans, they may not feel it. Oh, and expensive. Don't forget Yeah, expensive. and expensive, right. Now, if you're trying to go to a national park, you'll feel it. If you are um, part of, uh, of a set of activities that relies on federal grant funds, uh, you'll feel if you're a federal employee, you'll feel it'll. And the longer the shutdown goes, the more ripple effects it has and starts to you know impact someone you know in a, in a negative way. Well, the other interesting thing is there there's the federal employee population is one group. There's a much bigger downstream group of contractors, and then there's another downstream group, kind of the third you know, ring of the circle, which is all the people that the federal employees and the contractors buy services from and, you know, right. stores so there's, and restaurants. The, the, the sandwich shop down the street from the federal building in Columbus, Ohio, right. is going to see a dramatic decrease right. in its foot traffic on Monday. Um, so there are small business implications to this as well. The federal government has major economic implications. And, and, and you know this better than anyone. I think we've actually talked about this before. It's like it's somewhat sometimes popular to be like, yeah, the federal government, the bureaucrats, whatnot. But if you have a government building in your jurisdiction, in your town, um, and the government says, you know what, we don't really need that building anymore, or the operation there, we're going to move, we're going to shut that building down and cancel that operation. 
the community will complain. Mm -hmm. And the community will complain because A, the federal government's a great tenant. We bring good foot traffic. We bring, you know, employed, productive members of society to the community. Um, we spend money on office supplies and lunches. Still using the pronoun we. Interesting. Oh, yeah, it's been a true. while, hasn't it? I know. It? Yeah. I'm never going to lose yeah, that. Yeah, no, it's once in the DNA. family, always yeah, in the family. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, so, you know, so, so the government shutdown will... You know, it's kind of like the the baseball strike. You know, you stop playing baseball, and it's not just the fans that are hurt, but the the, the vendors that are selling the hot dogs and all these other you know businesses that that sprout up um, that rely economically on this game happening tonight. Well, there's a lot of tertiary implications to buildings throughout the the country where federal employees won't be showing up on Monday has an economic impact. But again, it's, the air traffic controls are going to still show up. Right. The prison guards are going to still show up. Right. The doctors at VA and nurses at VA hospitals are still going to show up. Yeah, as they should, but in a way, um, the only reason why they're, they're showing up is because there's been this decision to not make the government shut down as serious a breach of the responsibility of our elected officials as it really is. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, again, it would be cataclysmic uh, for there to be no air traffic control system. Exactly. All flights would suspend. Exactly. Um, which is why... Would, they, would, would probably inspire is, a deal. <laughs> which is why we need to be back to budget, reg, you know, regular order, and people need to take this seriously and not turn everything into some, you know epic political battle of, you know, red versus blue or blue versus red. And that's what our goal of Gov actually is. It is, although I have to say, I was gonna t I was gonna mention this as we wrap up here that I'd have to say that this is kind of the strongest single position on an issue that we've taken, right? We've tried to avoid but it's, being positional, but But it's still relentlessly nonpartisan. I mean yeah. we want the government to stay open is not a a red or a blue issue. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. I, 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 believe, I mean, look, I'm, you know, my attitude is I th I want the government to stay open. I also want the right public policies to be formulated. I want right. the right voices to be at the table and come together and collaborate on a solution. Um, but I think I, I really enjoy being a part of this forum, the Gov Actually Forum, because, you know, right now... Going on on CNN and uh, and Fox News and MSNBC is people yelling at each other and blame games and and all that kind of stuff. And I like being in the position of of just kind of thinking through what are the right things that the government should be doing to meet their mission. It's a great place to be in the middle. Right. All right. Well, thanks, Danny. I'm looking forward to another year in the middle with you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to another episode of Gov Actually on the FedScoop Radio Network. If you want to reach out to us, you can tweet us at, at GovActually, or you can send an email to dan at govactually.com or danny at govactually.com. 